Our text is another short, well-known psalm, Psalm 133. And since it's also one of the, the songs of ascent, it probably has in view, at least initially, the gathering of the pilgrim tribes at Zion in Jerusalem for the national feasts. But clearly, it's a text which is applicable to the whole life of the people of God, and it sets before us a good which we're prone to underestimate, I think, but one which we should esteem highly, a good which we should pursue vigorously, namely, unity. Unity. So we'll make three points here. Unity in verse 1, they're they're in the outline on the back inside page of the bulletin. Unity in verse 1, oil and dew in verses 2 and 3a, and blessing in verse 3b. Unity, oil and dew, and the blessing. So first then here, unity. Again, the text is Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, the text starts, behold. That is, see. Gaze upon, do not overlook, but take note of how good and pleasant it is when brethren or brothers dwell in unity. Psalm is trying to get you to see something. Augustine said that this psalm gave birth to the monasteries in the ancient church. To communities which sought to take the text as seriously as it could be taken, which sought to quite literally dwell together as one. And the biblical scholar, the 4th century biblical scholar Jerome, also called this psalm the psalm of convents and monasteries. Now, its original setting is the nation of Israel. And that means that neither she nor we, the church, you know, the church as the people of God, the church as a whole, can evade the text or delegate it to the monks. We are called to embrace the vision of the text. The the high calling of Israel, which they often fell short of, but which the national feast would remind them of, the national feast would rekindle, was that they were to be a community of true brotherhood. Right? They were a people, a nation, a family, forged by the bond of the covenant which is stronger than blood. The bond which forges the people together, the bond of the covenant is stronger than blood. And so Israel, like us, like the church, they are called to lives of unity. Now we're going to explore this a little bit here. This unity is broad and deep. It's broad because it means dwelling together or sharing a common life together. 
And so this is living and living together with the emphasis on together. And so the the text embraces all the ordinary tasks of ordinary life in the created order. Neighborliness, if you will. And it also includes a common life as a publicly, a publicly assembled, worshiping community. Both those things are in view in the text. It's in public worship where our broader unity is focused. Right? We're one here in a kind of unique way. It's focused and renewed here. And so the text has to do with the organic rhythms of life as well as special gatherings for worship and praise and instruction. So the unity is broad, that's in view. But in addition to being broad, the unity in view is deep. Because it's not simply getting along without strife. It's living. And that means living in love and in mutual care and support. A text like this assumes something. It assumes an intimacy. It assumes a knowledge of and an openness to the communion of the saints. So the unity in view is not just a unity of faith. It is that. But it's also, in Paul's words to the Philippians, a unity of mind and will and affection. It is hard to overstate the depths and the extent of the unity to which Holy Scripture calls the people of God. If, if, if monastic communities did not arise, we'd have to invent them. They're almost inevitable given the kind of texts that we face. It's, this unity is not uniformity, but it's fleshed out, living unity in diversity. Now, there are not a lot of people, especially in our uh, circles, our tradition, who are fervently passionate about unity. We have lots of warriors for the truth. We have few warriors for unity. But in the sense which Scripture speaks of it, unity is never pitted against the truth. As if pursuing one meant you had to neglect the other. In Holy Scripture, unity is truth embodied. It's truth enacted. It's truth lived out in the nitty-gritty of the communion of the saints. And it's not just something that God calls us to that's sort of floating out there, rootless. Sometimes we should ask ourselves, Why is this command so important? Why is it so basic? Why is it so pervasive? Where is it rooted? Well, the answer here is God himself. The deepest rationale for our unity is God himself, for God is one. And yet, he is a unity in diversity. He's a living communion of three persons in indissoluble unity. It's because of who God is. It's because of the being of God that we who are many are summoned to live as one. And this God 
Ephesians 1 tells us, is in Christ reintegrating, summing up, unifying all things in Jesus Christ. Unity is grounded in the being of God, and unity is grounded in the purpose of God. It flows out of the depths of the atoning reconciliation wrought by Christ, and unity is the goal of all the ways and works of the triune God. And it is both a gift, we already have it, Ephesians 4 says, we have unity in some measure, And we're called to preserve that unity, Paul says. But it's not just a gift, it's a task placed before us. Unity is both a gift and a task. Goethe said, what you have as heritage, take now as task, for thus you shall make it your own. You have a grand and a glorious heritage. Christians have an incredible heritage. I often tell people, including my children, there is nothing under the sun like the intellectual, artistic, cultural, social, theological, and philosophical inheritance of the Christian tradition. There's nothing like it. But you have to make it your task. What you have now as heritage, make it your task, for thus it becomes your own. We have this unity. It's given by Christ, but it has to be borne up as a task. It's a summons, and that's at the very heart of the community's purpose, her existence and calling. Step back for a second and just think. Think of the metaphors that the New Testament uses for the church. She is the body of Christ where the deep divisions between Jew and Gentile have been overcome. She's the reconciled community formed by the gospel of peace. And as such, she's a harbinger of the peace of the new creation. She's the city of God. She's the new and everlasting family. Brothers and sisters in Christ transcending the bonds of the biological family. This is why unity is such an inestimable good. And yet, sadly, churches don't vigorously embody this unity. They form cliques. People feel alone and isolated and marginalized. People slip through the cracks. The grand rhetoric doesn't match the reality. And people feel that. Cosmic reconciliation, fine. What about the tough work of living in unity here and now in this congregation? That's what this text is about. We cannot be the city of God or the new humanity if we don't intentionally share our lives and our time and our gifts and our homes with the brethren outside the walls of the church's gathering. Right? The, the form of unity to which the church is called is, does not take place in, in an isolated realm called fellowship time. It's as wide as the created order. That's why it's called living together. And the virtues that are required 
to preserve and realize this high calling are demanding virtues, right? Paul gives them to us in Ephesians 4. Patience, humility, gentleness, forbearance, forgiving love, encouragement, all of which assume a close involvement, a dwelling together. I mean, it's not hard to be forbearing to somebody who you happen to be in the same building with three hours a month. But if you don't know the name of someone who sits over there, then forbearance, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness, well, that's not too demanding. The whole New Testament assumes a communal life together that is going to challenge your forbearance and your ability to forgive. And so does this text. A few hours a month in the same room are not, is not going to forge the unity envisioned here. Or envisioned elsewhere in Scripture for the people of God. Our unity is certainly seen here. It is sealed here. It is strengthened here. But it is largely forged elsewhere. So, the text, notice, does not lay out any steps to follow to help realize unity. There's no imperatives in the text. Its approach is different. The text is observing without exhorting. I've already done some exhorting. But the text is mostly observing. What the text is, is, is about is it's seeking to show, that first word, behold. Seeking to show, to have us behold the value, the surpassing glory of living unity. The text believes that if we desire it, we will pursue it. That the fundamental problem is not that we won't check the unity box as a good thing, is that we don't see its splendor. And thus it calls this unity good and pleasant. And these are terms which have to do with perception or sight or vision. They're aesthetic terms. They're terms from the visual arts. God saw his handiwork in creation, and he repeatedly, after seeing it, called it good. That's what the psalmist wants you to experience when you perceive unity. Even back in that Genesis text, it was not good for the man to be alone. And so God created a woman and instituted marriage, the root of all community. Again, community is a good that belongs to and is as wide as the created order. Which is why in Christ, God is seeking creation's full restoration. So, the word pleasant, the next word in the text means delightful, or lovely, or beautiful. Gathered together, assembled here, Psalm 27 says, We gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in His temple. And the word for beauty there in Psalm 27 is the same word translated pleasant here in 133. You know what that means? That means God's people dwelling in unity are a reflection of the loveliness and the beauty of God Himself. 
And so this showing forth of the splendor of unity is enlarged in our second point. The second point is oil and dew. The first image here, oil is drawn from the realm of redemption. And the second, dew, is is from the realm of creation. Again, um, it's a a poetic way of giving us a sense of the, the breadth of unity. So first, oil. God's people dwelling together is like the precious oil poured on the head. Oil was used in the Middle East to refresh guests and visitors. It speaks of a simple but a generous kind of hospitality to neighbors and strangers. But the text specifies a little more precisely in the next phrase. It's like precious oil running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's a picture of the ordination of the high priest. Because he's the one who makes atonement for our alienation and our division. He's the one who with the 12 stones worn on his breastplate is the visible embodiment of our unity. Again, the sanctuary then. This is sanctuary language, priestly language. The place of worship under and in Jesus, our anointed high priest, is the place where unity is made visible and strengthened and renewed. And the oil here is a picture of the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit is the source of unity, and the Spirit is the perfecter of unity. But notice this in the text. It's an image of profusion. Oil running down. You can notice that in the text. There's about four different words for falling or down. Running down and down and down. And this tells us that unity is given from above. And it's an extravagant thing. It diffuses its blessings far and wide. When's the last time anyone spoke to you or to me about the extravagance of unity? It's plentiful. It's life-giving. It's refreshing. Unity is not just a baseline thing. Yeah, we got the baseline thing. We got the unity thing. Now we can do the real stuff. It's not a baseline thing we build on. It's an extravagant thing. And that's the point of the second image as well. It's as if the dew from Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Hermon is the highest peak in the land. It's situated in the far north. It's 125 miles away from Zion. It's known for its abundant dew. But its dew would not fall as far south as Zion. The dew is not going to fall 125 miles away. The text says that unity, notice this, is as if, as if the drier, dustier Zion were drenched with the life-giving dew of Mount Hermon. Yahweh himself is likened to dew for us, to dew for Israel. In Hosea, dew causes fertility, fruitfulness, flourishing for the land. When Isaac blessed Jacob, he said, may God give you the dew of heaven. Earth's richness and an abundance of grain and new wine. 
So unity is good. It is pleasant because it's a spirit-given abundance of life and health and rejuvenation for the church, the people of God. I mean, strife and dissent take up so much energy. I mean, don't they? They're exhausting. They're counterproductive. They're deep hindrances. Right? They erode the vitality of the church. They're taxes on the life and the mission of the church. You're having a little tiff with somebody. There's somebody you avoid because eight years ago they did something you didn't like. All that stuff costs the church. It's a tax. Unity, this kind of dwelling together, the text says, unleashes a life of fullness and joy and peace. It's as if the dew from Mount Hermon traveled 125 miles to flood the land. Finally, the third point here is the blessing. From there, our text concludes, from there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Notice, notice the word there. From there, the Lord bestows his blessing. There is Mount Zion, but it also refers back to God's people dwelling together in unity. So, the unified people of God, a people whose unity is centered in Zion, in public worship, that people evoke a blessing, a benediction from the Lord. It's important to see this. The Lord, through his blessing, which is depicted in this text as oil and dew, the Lord, through his blessing, creates unity, and then he blesses the unity that he has created. That's how highly he regards it. The Spirit creates unity, and then the Sovereign Lord blesses the unity he creates. And our text says, from there the Lord bestows his blessing. But the original is even stronger. It's more like from there the Lord commands his blessing. He commands or he decrees. He utters a living, life-giving, prosperous word on a unified people who dwell together. And the sum of this blessing which God speaks is life forevermore. Everlasting life. Unity is the supreme blessing and it evokes from God the supreme blessing of eschatological life and glory. Eternal life in the everlasting kingdom is unified life. It's the goodness and the beauty and the oil and the dew of this text brought to its glorious full consummation. It's not a bunch of people dying in, in states of semi-alienation floating off to heaven. And thus, it's the church, as we asserted earlier, in her reconciled life of communion, of dwelling together, which is the harbinger of eternal life and peace. So, let me conclude. This text, not surprisingly, um, it's been used historically in connection with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And with good reason. For the Supper, the Supper enshrines the reality that the road to unity 
goes through atonement. The road to unity lies through atonement, through the blood of the cross. This unity here cannot be attained by you summoning up or seeking to muster fuzzy, warm feelings for people you don't naturally like. The road to unity goes through atonement. It's just as costly to attain as the forgiveness of sins or any other benefit of the gospel. It takes the broken son of man, the work of the greater ironic high priest, anointed with the oil of the spirit beyond measure. That atoning reconciliation of that anointed high priest alone can affect this unity. Because not only is it going to radiate out and overcome all of history's divisions, but from that atoning cross of Jesus, power goes forth to enable us to be a united people. It goes down into all the selfish nooks and crannies of our souls, our bent-in selves, our alienation, our techniques of avoidance, our distance-keeping, our failure to live as one, our refusal to treat the bond of the covenant as stronger than the bond of blood. The church showed great wisdom in using this text as a meditation on the supper because this text and the Lord's Supper are calling for the same thing, embodied unity. And the one, the one who instituted the supper on that very same night prayed that his disciples would be one. We read that in the gospel lesson. One in the deepest possible sense, even as he and the Father are one. You know, that passage from John 17 is a remarkable passage. The visible oneness, Jesus said, would enable the world to know that the Father has sent the Son. And that he loves us as he loves the Son. Jesus says this, if you don't manifest a oneness, that is the oneness that I have with my Father the world cannot believe the gospel. You know, we think the world doesn't believe the gospel because we're not good enough evangelists, or we don't have enough programs to train people, or our tracks aren't good enough, or we don't pray enough. Jesus says, why would the world believe the gospel when sociologically it's pretty clear that the church is roughly the same thing as the VFW is? A collection of people that gather together and are kind to one another for a couple hours a month. He's looking for a new humanity. He says, look, if you don't have this kind of unity, the world will not believe. Why should they believe it? The gospel's about cosmic reconciliation and peace. And you're splattered into 57,000 denominations and going out and preaching the gospel of cosmic reconciliation and, pre- and, and peace? How preposterous is that? I would ignore me. It's a stunningly exorbitant petition from our high priest. The church is called to reflect the very unity in diversity of God himself. You know, there's one scholar lamenting a Christian divisions, he called our Lord's petition for unity the most spectacularly unanswered prayer in history. 
But it has, in part, been answered. And it shall be fully answered. Jesus' prayers are going to be answered. But the unity of the people of, of God is critical to the mission of the people of God. This prayer that our Lord uttered, like the supper, like Psalm 133, expresses his deepest desires. Because the prayer recognizes that divisions, you know, seen or unseen, big or small, they mar, they destroy our witness. They remove the goodness and the pleasantness and the loveliness of this text from our corporate lives. Now, I could here easily list off some things to do in response to this text. Reach out to and learn about folks here that you don't know well. Learn their names. Learn the names of their children. In a church this size, everybody should know everybody's name and should know the name of everybody's children. Make an effort to learn about the actual lives Cross comfortable boundaries during the coffee and fellowship time. Refuse to fellowship with the same seven people that you've been fellowshipping with in the past. Practice, notice that word, practice hospitality. Spend time with people. Enlarge and enrich the unity that you already share. you got to be intentional. You have to forge new bonds and strengthen the existing ones. These are all good things which could be said. In fact, I just said them, (laughs) proving that they can be said. Um, But this text is actually trying to do something different than that, something more basic, which if we were to grasp the more basic thing, it would kindle and inspire all the stuff I just said and a whole lot more. The text seems to inspire delight. The text is trying to get you to perceive, to behold, to smell and see the precious oil, to sense the abundance, to feel the dew, the vital life-giving freshness of that dew. The text is trying to draw you into a visceral, sensory experience of the splendor and the beauty and the glory of unity, to estimate it rightly as the chief value of the family of God. It's trying to get us to see that robust unity and everlasting life, notice that the text does that, cannot be severed from one another. It's trying to get us to make us people who gaze on the wonder of it and who exclaim with the psalmist, Behold, how good, not just good, by the way, how good, How good and pleasant and lovely and delightful it is when God's people live together in unity. Amen.